0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Rob Archer.
2: I'm Charles Feldman. The chorus. It is getting louder and louder for Senator Dianne Feinstein to resign. The New York Times now even weighing in. We'll go in depth.
1: The World Health Organization has taken a major step at the COVID crisis. The party's also already starting in the UK ahead of its first coronation in 70 years. We'll go to London live. I assume they mean symbolically.
2: No, I'm actually going to go now uh, to London. The show's all yours. On a very fast plane. Good luck. <laughs> we start with the I wish. We start with the growing calls, though, for Senator Feinstein to resign. With us is Tony Smith, political science and law professor at UC Irvine. Thanks for being with us.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be back. So,
2: uh, you know, not that The New York Times is the be-all and end-all, but for many people, especially in Washington, The New York Times is the be-all and end-all. So is this significant and does it have any actual repercussions?
3: So the the only way it would be significant is if somebody at The New York Times knows more than we do about the state of her health. Um, I think... As long as her team thinks she can go back and vote, she's going to stick around because um, the team will all lose their jobs overnight if she resigns. So (laughs) um, her health, I think, is going to determine whether or not she steps down early. But if we assume for a minute that she does step down early, um, then that presents a lot more interesting questions for us than whether or not she should step down.
1: Now, as to whether she should step down or not, you know, people are pointing to the fact, and this is coming from uh, from, you know, people on her side of the aisle, that some judicial appointments are being held up because uh, the committee can't get anything out of committee without her there to vote.
3: Yeah, let me talk about the judicial appointments. So, yeah, there are four that are frozen, but they approved seven last week. So it isn't like no judicial appointments are happening. Um, I think the people that are being loud have a very specific outcome they want to see. And that is they want her out and a more progressive Senator in, um, not so much because they care about what a freshman Senator is going to do, but rather so they can flex and show that they matter a lot. So let's say that she does step down. Roe kind of is going to walk around saying that he triggered it. um, And therefore the progressives run the show um, I, I can't imagine anybody on Diane Feinstein's team cares what anybody who's in their first four or five terms in the House says. I, it just isn't germane to them. It's different worlds in, in so many ways. So um, the the other kind of strange, interesting conventional wisdom that's developing is somehow Gavin Newsom would decide to uh, appoint an interim who wouldn't run for re-election. And um this is strange to me because the last Senate opportunity he had, he appointed somebody fully intending to run. So I don't I don't know why the um some members of the political world are thinking that Governor Newsom would choose an interim who isn't going to also be interested in the seat.
2: Well, because, um, well, I mean, because it is shaping up to be a kind of hot contest, right? Uh, well, but it
3: w- but Kamala Harris' seat would have been a hot contest. Yes, that's too. true. I and mean, it's, it's it's absolutely no different. So, what do you
2: do? Well, so, let me ask you then. So, yeah. it, let's say you're Gavin Newsom. Then, what do yeah? I would appoint you, London do do?
3: Breed. I'd appoint London Breed.
2: Really? Okay.
3: Yeah, I would take somebody who's a young politician of tomorrow that would do very well in a in a. The general election. Um, Then you can say to Adam Schiff, hey, uh, look, you still get the chance to knock her off in the general election. And you can say to Katie Porter, I don't know if you've been to Northern California, but why don't you come see what it looks like? Um, And you can say to Barbara Lee, you know, we don't need to keep having, you you know, you don't say anything to Barbara Lee. You thank her for her service, but she's (laughs) 77. I mean, no, no sane governor would appoint uh, 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 somebody who's in their late 70s, when age is going to be an issue in the next big election. So the some another people have been buzzing around about, oh well, maybe he'll appoint Barbara Boxer or Jerry Brown. So they just you know they're an interim. But this makes absolutely no sense. He would he's wasting political capital. Mm. He can appoint London Breed or someone like her. Keep his promise to appoint an African American female and appoint one who won't just be. A, a token to sit up there and do nothing long, and then retire or die long before they get seniority. Right. So you could actually have somebody that has some power over time. Like
2: you, you opened up inadvertently a can of worms, totally off topic. You mentioned Jerry Brown. What the heck is yeah. he doing? <laughs>
3: Uh, I'm, I think he's, you know, being Jerry Brown on his farm. I, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, that... I don't know, building a train
1: somewhere. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, uh, Tony Smith, political science and uh, law professor at UC Irvine. You,
2: you remember Jerry Brown, don't you? Jerry Brown. The name like, sounds yeah. so familiar. Like governor, and it's like he's vanished. Uh, I don't know. Like, I can't recall his name. Today's jobs report better than what many economists expected. But that raises questions about, well, whether we're really headed for a recession and whether the Federal Reserve's moves to slow down the economy are working. Chris Doritos is Deputy Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. Chris, thanks for being with us.
4: Happy to be here. Thanks. So
2: uh, what say you? Uh, What we see today with the jobs report, is this good news, certainly if you're getting a job or want to get a job, or is it really sort of bad news down the road?
4: I'd say it was a solid report today. We added uh, 253,000 jobs to the economy last month. The unemployment rate fell to 3.4%. Average hourly earnings remains relatively strong. So at least from the the workers' perspective, it it was a good report. We saw a very resilient uh, labor market, pretty easy still to find jobs and get uh, pay increases. Uh, So from that perspective, all good. I would say if you're thinking about the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and what they're going to do in terms of interest rates, how they're going to react to this report, I think it was also fairly in line with what their expectations were. So I don't think it changes much of what they're thinking in terms of raising interest rates or pausing uh, at this point.
1: Uh, I'm going to approach this as a person who is not independently wealthy, does not own a corporation, and who has to keep an eye on the bills. Uh, so I look at this and I, I see what the Fed is doing, and I understand it a bit. And they explain that well we we have to cause some pain so that we don't have more pain later. We have to we have to slow down the economy so that we don't go into recession. All right, I get that that uh, kind of makes sense. But what I wonder is, from the street level, it seems like the idea of the Fed slowing down the economy means Fewer people get jobs, more people are out of work. Fortunately, that hasn't happened in the latest report. But why do they focus on slowing down the economy by hurting some workers rather than focusing on, and maybe they can't, massive corporate profits and uh, big CEO bonuses and, and things like that? And that's how people see it from the street level.
4: Yeah, I, I get that. I'd say first that the, the Fed is not interested in causing that pain right having unemployment rise or throwing people out of work that's not what they're after they're trying to get inflation down right that's that's job one if they can achieve that if they can get that inflation down without actually causing a lot of unemployment i think they're they're happy it's just that they're looking back historically at how things have worked in the past and it has been the case that if uh, wages are rising at a very rapid pace then unemployment does have to go up in in order to bring those down but there are some reasons to believe maybe this time could be different right there are we do see a, a bit of slowing in the uh, in the wage growth so things seem to be going in the right direction here it's just a question of you know whether we can keep on that path or if the unemployment rate gets so low that it causes wages to rise and that causes inflation to rise then the fed will bring out the hammer and uh, continue to, to slow down the economy. But that's not the that's not the objective, right? There. I, I'm curious, Chris, uh, and uh,
2: maybe you're not one of them, but but so many experts that I've read in the past few months have been sort of uh, surprised. I, there is the word. I was trying to think of this a better word, but surprise is the best word. Surprised about how intractable the inflation problem has been in light of all of the Uh, interest increases, interest rate increases that the Fed has imposed. Uh, Why are they surprised? Is there something unique about this that is taking everybody by surprise? Is that word again? I like
4: that word, surprise. (laughs) I'd say the biggest surprise here is that there have been so many factors occurring simultaneously, right? We had this massive pandemic, the shock of that, the supply chain issues related to that, the labor demand (laughs) issues related to that with people getting sick or taking care of people who were sick or not able to go to work for because of lockdown, right? And then just as we're getting through that, we get the vaccines, everything seems to be moving on track. Then we have this Russia-Ukraine situation with oil prices spiking as well. So it's it's just been a series of shocks. And the economy, you know, we've, we've dumped a lot of stimulus into the economy as well. So there's just so many factors going on here that I think for a lot of us, it's difficult to really parse out what is important, what are these different Shocks. At the same time, there are all these massive changes in terms of demographics and technology, right? That we're that we're going through that would have impacted the economy independent of all this. So there's just a lot of a lot of things going on. It's it's tough to discern which of these uh factors is is most important. And it's just gonna take some time for things to work out. And I think at times we could be a little impatient, uh, you know, demanding that the effects uh show up right away, when in fact the economy usually takes time to absorb a lot of these, uh, these facts. So,
1: so what you seem to be saying is that finances and the economy are complicated. <laughs> yes, that's that's yes, the gist that's, I'm getting here. All right, uh, thank you so much. Chris Taritas, Deputy Chief Economist at uh, Moody's Analytics.
2: If you stick around with us, we're going to take you on a trip all across the U.S., all mm-hmm. across the, in the mm-hmm. Atlantic. We're going to land you mm-hmm. right in the heart of merry old England in mm-hmm. London for the formal crowning of a king.
1: But you got to ride coach. Uh,
2: or on the wing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever, the, whatever is the cheapest.
1: Yeah. Yes. Right now, though, the Hollywood writer's strike heads into its first weekend. The CEO of Paramount recently said the consumers won't uh, really notice anything for a while. Michael Snyder is Variety's TV editor. Thanks for joining us.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So uh, will consumers notice for a while? Will it take a while? Or will uh, is is he maybe being a little pie in the sky about that?
5: <laughs> well, it depends what you're talking about. Some things people are already noticing. The talk shows, the late night talk shows have been off the air since Monday. Uh, Saturday Night Live, which was supposed to uh, return uh, tomorrow night with Pete Davidson as, as host, is not happening now. And uh, you are starting to see a, a lot of shows shut down production. So Eventually, those shows won't make it to air or they'll be greatly delayed. So so I think audiences will start to notice at some point soon. I am curious on
2: the late night shows. uh, I mean, in theory, couldn't the hosts uh, and like Bill Maher, I don't know if he's doing a show or not uh, tonight, but couldn't they just do the show?
5: They're not really scripted. Couldn't they do it on their own? Oh, a good chunk of these shows are scripted. Uh, you know, Bill Maher is a good example. That's a show that's heavily scripted. You know, he has several segments that are scripted. Uh, and most of these hosts are also members of the Writers Guild. They're writers, first and foremost, uh, comedians. And and so, uh, you know, they're on strike. So uh, that would be seen as crossing picket lines and scabbing if uh, they, they were to go back on the air and, and start telling their own jokes.
1: And it is a question of, uh, as far as, you know, not the talk shows, but uh, movies and TV series of how much scripts are already, how many scripts are already in the can. And uh, I'm friends with a few TV and and movie writers uh, on social media, and one of them has a great, uh, says something great about this. He said, uh, David Gerald says something to the effect, without writers... All you're going to have are naked actors on an empty, dark stage. So if we're waiting around, looking at our streaming services and going into the theaters, uh, how long, really, is it going to be before we see naked actors on empty, dark stages?
5: Well some of that will take a while. The streamers, uh, you know, they they uh you know, sit on their shows for a lot longer than broadcast uh because uh, you know they they don't have the same sort of air pattern. They don't have a schedule that they need to fill hours each night the way the traditional linear networks do. So they can uh, you know slowly dole out shows perhaps a little slower than usual uh which will allow them to at least have originals for a lot longer. Uh, The broadcast networks are going into summer hiatus, so you won't notice until really September for them uh, if they come back and and they have a lot more reality TV and sports on there because they don't have original scripted. So in time, you will notice, but you're right in that the streamers especially, uh, you know, they they produce things so early on before they release them that they'll have – they're sitting on a a lot of uh, a backlog of shows on the shelf. So, if we look toward the past, a
2: previous writer strike helped really germinate uh, the era of reality TV, right? Uh, so well, if we
5: huh? yeah, I mean, reality had been already yeah, uh, but it
2: but it really well. took off it well. but it really so, took off after that.
5: yeah uh, it didn't
2: hurt it it didn't yeah. hurt it. uh so but now, if we look into the future, what is likely to happen if this is a protracted strike?
5: Uh, you know, that's that's a question that we're all asking right now in, in terms of what does this mean? You know, one of the big conversations and uh, uh, negotiating sticking points is uh, the use of artificial intelligence, AI, and the concern of, you know, whether or not these companies will start to use more AI to write certain things. I feel like we're still a long way off there because AI is still pretty rudimentary, but – you know, the AI gets better all the time. And that's a, it's a real concern for people in, in a lot of industries, including, by the way, my own industry. Uh, so, so that's a serious conversation we have to have. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a problem at some point if, uh, you know, not only the writers stay on strike, but the directors and the actors also go on strike, which is a real possibility this summer.
1: Yeah, I know as you were talking about how streamers, you know, they get a lot of content done ahead of time. I, I'm thinking in terms of like one of my favorite shows, which is uh, uh, the, the the Star Trek shows. They've already got the next series ready to go. It hasn't even debuted yet, but they've got the, the whole season done. I think they're just putting finishing touches on uh, post-production uh, effects and what have you. So they've got time to wait, but broadcast networks are a little bit more under the gun. Because if you look at uh, some of your favorite shows, you you go down the seasons and you can see that year, 24 episodes, 24, 24. And then all of a sudden, here's one that had 16 episodes. Oh, that was the year of the writer's strike. And that was after the writer's strike was over and the writers came back to work, but they didn't have time to make a whole slate of shows. Are we going to see that happen
6: again?
5: Yeah, that's probably likely. By the way, we also saw that during the pandemic. So this was also a pretty recent event where productions had to shut down and seasons were cut short. Shows were delayed. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there is recent experience for this. And and uh, we'll be back at that once again.
1: All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Michael Schneider, Variety's TV editor.
2: You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Felton.
1: The World Health Organization. Uh, hello. Let me try that one again. The World Health Organization now says COVID-19 is no longer qualifying as a global
2: emergency. But does that mean the pandemic is over. With us now is a professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. I'm talking about none other than Dr. William Schaffner. Thanks for coming back with us, doctor.
6: Good to be with you, Rob. Sure. So you know
2: that that there are people who are going to take what the World Health Organization said and take from it that the pandemic is now
6: officially over. But that's not true, is it? Well, not exactly. Uh, It's not mission accomplished. The pandemic phase may be over, but we're now in an endemic phase. And what I mean is this virus hasn't disappeared. It doesn't go away completely in the summertime the way influenza does. It's continuing to smolder. And across the country, it causes still, it's amazing, 200 to 300 deaths a day. So it's still out there. We have to keep our guard up. We're going to have to learn how to live with this virus, Rob, going forward. And the latest concern I have, of course, is that the bivalent booster vaccine that's out there has been accepted in an underwhelming way. Uh, Less than 20% of the target population of the U.S. has so far availed themselves of this still free bivalent vaccine
1: are we going to get to the point and maybe this is why they are declaring an end to the uh, health emergency where the uh, covid uh, covid will spread so slowly that even if people don't adopt the vaccine boosters as much as they should it still won't give a foothold to the virus so that it can spread like wildfire again
6: well that's the hope and i have my fingers crossed uh, but two things about that the first is that we know that the immunity we get, the protection, wanes over time, even if we've been infected and certainly after the vaccine. So at a given point, our population may once again become susceptible and we may see more serious disease occurring. The other thing is that the World Health Organization is continuing its surveillance of all of these covid viruses that are out there in the world looking for anticipating a new mutant, one that could be more serious. So that's ongoing. And we'll continue to do that in the United States. Also, let me take a, a darker view on this and run this by you. Um,
2: when the World Health Organization says that it no longer covid qualifies as an emergency, that the pandemic, as you put it, the pandemic stage is over. It's now endemic. Doesn't that actually mean that we failed miserably? Doesn't that mean that when it was declared a pandemic early on, the hope was that we would contain it, right? That we would get enough people by masks, by social distancing, then by vaccines to try to stop it in its tracks and to stop it from mutating into more and more um, contagious uh, variants. And we failed. And so, as you put it, it's now endemic and we're going to have to live with this little bug for who knows how many
6: more decades or longer? Well, there was never the anticipation with this respiratory virus that we could completely eliminate it from the population. That may have been a thought that occurred to people early on, but not to the virologists. They knew that we couldn't get rid of it completely. We've been partially successful. We have muted Uh, the impact of this virus on our population and the world's population, but there are many lessons to be learned. We could have done a better job both at home and abroad. Now,
1: I assume that the World Health Organization and other uh, national health organizations will be able to uh, declare emergency again if it sees fit, if, if COVID returns in force and we've got a new mutant that spreads like crazy. Uh, but how close are we to that border in your view? Are we just right next to it like it could happen any moment? Or Are we relatively safe for now from that happening again?
6: Well, at the moment most of us think we're pretty much on the safe side. That is, it's been quite some time since Omicron was out there, which is, although it's spread rapidly, it's less serious. So that's very good. And Omicron has spun off some children, as it were, other subvariants. but they haven't really evaded in a substantial way the protection that we have from our vaccines, and they're certainly not more severe So this has been going on for a while now, and uh, that gives us some comfort. Now, that said, you still have to remain alert because this virus could potentially mutate somewhere in the world and create a much more serious variant. And then the game starts all over again. Mm. But we hope that won't happen.
1: All right. thanks so much, Dr. William Schaffner at the uh, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine.
2: The celebrations, they have already started across the ocean in the UK as King Charles III's coronation is set for tomorrow.
1: It's more pomp and circumstance than you can
2: shake a stick at. So, with us now from
1: London... With their sticks, Christo Fufas, royal commentator and TV and radio presenter. Also, Amelia and John Brame. They're an American couple who now live in London. They have a travel blog called the Uh Amelia and John, I want to start with you. As Americans uh, coming from a tradition that does not have a monarchy, what do you make of all this? Is this? Is your feeling that the people around you are, yeah, this is historical, they like it, but maybe not as much as they used to.
3: Yeah, it's been it's been interesting to be here. I feel like most people are kind of hesitant to say how they really feel. <laughs> um,
2: well, how do because, you feel? How do you feel?
3: Well, you know, we're Americans living here, and so I feel like I shouldn't have an opinion because I don't <laughs> know all of. You know, I don't understand the dedication to the monarchy.
6: <laughs> it's certainly been um, an interesting time the last couple of months here.
2: Christo, uh, tell us a little bit about what is going to happen tomorrow.
6: Right. Well,
0: tomorrow uh, is, I mean, there's a lot of ceremony going on. There are lots of flags out in london and i think your couple that you have on make a fair point in as much as we've had a lot of royal occasions over the last 12 months historic groundbreaking never to see in your life again royal occasions over the last 12 months there was the uh sad uh, late queens uh, gold, uh, a platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne just in June last year, her sad death, and then funeral in the September, now the coronation. So that's a lot of royal events in 11 months. And so I really think it's ramped up this past week that people have started to get in the spirit and get excited about it. Because, as I said, we've had a lot of royal uh, events taking place. But the television schedules are clear. The Mao and many of the landmarks in London all have the Union flags all over them. Uh, really lovely touch, something I noticed earlier today, the Dorchester Hotel, one of the most famous hotels on Park Lane, has decorated itself with the exact regalia outside with all of these uh, beautiful sashes in, in navy blue velvet and, and, and the, the king's arms and all these things, exactly the same as was in 1953 when Queen Elizabeth II had her coronation. Uh, It's a full bank holiday weekend, meaning that everyone's got Monday off work, but you're right in saying that tomorrow it's the main event, the actual coronation itself, which, uh, as I say, the like of which the UK hasn't seen in, in 70 years taking place in Westminster
1: Abbey. So, so Chris, so, so the the excitement is obviously building. But uh, I want to ask you overall about the monarchy in general. I uh, the feeling I get from from hearing people on that side of the pond talk about it is that uh, they were kind of done with a monarchy, but they liked the queen. So their feelings about the monarchy in general and the queen were a little bit separate. Now, with the queen having passed on and Charles ascending the throne uh, and Charles maybe not quite as beloved as the queen was, do you think there is a sense of like, this is going to be our last hurrah for the monarchy? And maybe maybe we should start winding this whole pomp and circumstance thing down. Do you get that feeling or are, are we on this side of the ocean
0: misreading it? from some quarters certainly i think it's a fair comment that you've made that more people are saying it than whilst the queen was alive and i think that's for a couple of reasons firstly the cost of living crisis inflation being so high here in the united kingdom a lot of people it's brought into focus the inequality and uh, you know i say this as a lover of the royal family the sort of absurdity of having an hereditary monarchy and the head of state. Um, But also as well, Charles, of course, King Charles. I think one of the reasons is that we know so much about him. The thing with Queen Elizabeth was that she ascended to the throne so young, she never put a foot wrong. And the reason that she was so beloved was not only her service and dedication, but you actually knew very little about what she thought about anything. Charles you know everything about what he <laughs> thinks about everything, because, it, of course, he's, he's a man in his 70s. He's, he's had opinions. He couldn't live his life never saying anything about anything. So, therefore, that's put him under a, a bigger amount of scrutiny uh, than his mother. And, of course, I, I I tell you now, you could put anyone in the following in the footsteps of Queen Elizabeth and they'd have a tough job, because she was so beloved and she so rarely put a foot wrong. However... um. I think the latest poll, I think YouGov did a big poll here, and overall it's still about 58 to 60% of people here still are in favour of a monarchy uh, and and it continuing with Charles. William and Kate are two of the most popular royals and I think that that they are massively beloved. Mm. And so I don't think the monarchy is going anywhere, but I think it's fair to say that the scrutiny will be ramped up at lunch.
1: Well, there you go. Uh, joining us from London, Christo Fufas, a commentator and TV and radio presenter, also American couple living in London right now, Amelia and John Brain uh, living there and seeing it all up close and personal. You're going to watch it at all? I'm going to watch some, of it, some but, of it. But that's the thing. It's like It's like a Super Bowl yeah. where it just goes on and on and on and you're waiting for the actual game to begin and that's still nine hours down the road. <laughs> So I just want to see the guy sit down on the throne and put the crown on his head. Put
2: the thing on his head. And then that's it.
1: Yeah. Okay. I imagine it's a lot more than that. That's it for KDX in depth this week. Thank you, Charles. Uh, we will do this again on Monday.